Well, good morning. If you're a regular around here, then you know that it is our usual practice as we gather week after week to study continuously and sequentially, passage by passage, book by book through the Bible. It's my intention that if, if you're regular here, that eventually we will be able to share with you the whole of God's Word. And so, having uh, recently concluded our study through Luke's Gospel, and having spent about a month looking at, at Psalms 11 through 15, and next week we will begin our next study, which will be through the book of 1 Samuel. But I said next week. This week, before we move on to 1 Samuel, I want to do uh, something that I sometimes will do. Uh, I want to take the opportunity this morning to address a rather timely issue. Now, some of you know, uh, Luann and I were gone last week and we were up at a, a regional young adults conference with some of our young adults and uh, besides having the privilege of teaching them on Sunday morning, I was also able to be a part of a Q&A panel, uh, which is often quite a fun experience. Uh, one of the first questions was asked by uh, a quite sincere and serious young woman. And she asked this. Uh, she asked, what can be done about all the apathy in the church? And thinking myself to be quite funny, I immediately answered, who cares? <laughs> I mean, get it? Who cares about apathy? Yeah, she didn't get it either. <laughs> yeah, apparently I was not nearly as funny as I thought I was. And I know some of you are thinking this is a repeat offense. <laughs> she did eventually forgive me, and I did give her a, a serious answer. And I bring all this up, though, because in a sense... Her question is directly related to what I want to, us to consider this morning, uh, apathy. And now before you begin to take offense at me calling you apathetic, let me explain. And I promise you, you'll have plenty of opportunity later to be offended by what I say. Uh, here's how it works. We all get a definition within our minds, a picture of what it is that apathy looks like, a, a picture that, well, honestly, doesn't fit us or our situation. Uh, we think of apathy, we think of the, the person who irresponsibly and uncaringly, unthinkingly ignores uh, the very thing that they ought to be giving their undivided, their focused attention to. And when you confront them with this very real and very serious issue, uh, they respond, eh, who cares about apathy, right? Yeah. That's apathy. But let me assure you, there are other sneakier ways that apathy creeps in to how we respond to things. There's busyness, for example, that can cause us to respond with that frantic and often genuine and reality-based statement of, listen, I know this is a serious problem, but I just don't have time for this. You ever said that? Other times, uh, apathy shows up as we convince ourselves 
hey, listen, I am doing something about this, uh, when really we're not doing something about it. In fact, sometimes all we are doing is complaining. Uh, we delude ourselves into thinking that complaining about things is actually responding to things, but it isn't. Even incessant ranting about the state of things doesn't help to change the state of things. <laughs> Closely related to complaining is posting about things. I'm convinced that social media at its best is simply a waste of time. It's a tool of the enemy to distract us, to delude us into thinking that we're actually doing something when really we aren't accomplishing anything. We can also slide into apathy through being overwhelmed. I mean, haven't you ever just looked at this dumpster fire of a world and thought, what's the use? I, I mean, how can I make a difference? Ha haven't you looked around and realized, you know, there are just more issues than I can even track. I can't even keep track of everything that's going wrong. And there are more problems than, than any one person could ever respond to. And so it is easy, even when you care, to begin to slip into the mentality of doing nothing because what's the use? And all of those things end up being apathy. Abraham Kuyper, on the other hand, was anything except apathetic. Kuyper was a prolific intellectual, theologian, and journalist. He founded not just a church, but a whole denomination. He also founded the Free University of Amsterdam, a school that exists even today with 30,000 students. He was a politician serving as a member of the uh, Netherlands parliament and serving as the prime minister of the Netherlands from 1901 till 1905. But those were just his hobbies. His real passion, his real job as he saw it, was to engage the culture with a Christian worldview. Now, I get it. People like Kuiper, they're not normal. They're extraordinary. They have gifting and they have abilities that are exceptional. But even with those exceptional giftings and abilities, there's something else about them that causes them to make a difference in this world. You see, even with all that gifting and ability, if they did not have a sufficient motivating conviction, everything that God has given them would just simply lie dormant and waste away without them ever really doing anything that truly mattered. Kuiper's motivation was serving Christ. His most famous quote gives us a, a key to understanding him. He said this, he said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Uh, what Kuiper is saying is that as Christ looks at us in our lives, he sees that all of it, all of who we are and all of what we do 
falls under the authority of that which he would say is his. You see, Kuiper understood that Christ was Lord over every aspect of our living, that there was no area of our life to which he did not speak. When he acted as a journalist and he acted as a politician, every bit as much as when he acted as a pastor, Kuiper saw all that he did as being something that was done for Christ and in Christ. Contrary to popular opinion these days, belonging to Jesus is not a private religious matter. Belonging to Jesus is the all-encompassing fact uh, that orders every aspect of the believer's life, uh, that governs not only the private issues, but also uh, the very public actions and the living of our life. The Christian faith cannot, it simply cannot be lived out privately. It's just bigger than that. Jesus calls us out publicly to be his representatives, his ambassadors, and he claims authority over, and not only our inner moral life, but just as much over how it is that we engage in life in the public world, how we live, how we act, how we speak, how we interact with others publicly. Our faith is to shape every aspect of our lives. You and I, were to to live the way that, that Paul describes in Galatians chapter 2. Now understand, there in Galatians 2, Paul is talking about how it is that we are saved, that we are saved by grace and not by our works. But what he says here also speaks to, to how it is that we live this life that we live, that we are to live no longer for self, but we are to live for Christ and in Christ and through Christ. Consider what Paul writes there. He says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. Paul says that for the Christian, the living of life for self is done. It is finished. He says, I no longer live, but he says, Christ lives in me. He says, uh, the life I now live in the body, I live it by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What Paul is saying is that the whole of our lives must be surrendered to Christ. That we are to live no longer for self, no longer according to self, but we are to live his way. And we are to be living, seeking after his desires. We are to live our lives seeking to let him live through us. Jesus talks about this very same concept in Mark chapter 8, uh, describing to his disciples the absolute surrender that he calls us to. Uh, listen to what Jesus says. He says, if anyone wants to follow after me, in other words, if anyone wants to be my disciple, if anyone wants to be my follower, here is what, here is what that will look like. He says, let him deny himself. In other words, life is no longer about you. It's no longer about your preference, your choice, your perspective, your thoughts, your ways. You are to no longer live for self 
to the extent that you are to take up your cross, Jesus says. You're to take up your cross. That means reckoning yourself as being dead. Uh, reckoning yourself as and no longer being viable, uh, but rather, he says, and follow me. In other words, we are to live our lives instead for Christ and in Christ. Christian, understand this concept clearly. Let this sink in. The Christian life is not a life augmented by God. The Christian life is a life that is consumed by God. It's, it's, not, it's not God augmenting our life. It's not God making our life better for us, though that does happen. It is God consuming our life and us no longer living for self, but now living for Christ, now walking in his spirit according to his ways. And in exchange, as we lay down our life, he gives us what we could never gain in and of ourselves. He restores us to, to that thing for which we were designed, fellowship with himself and eternal life free from sin and brokenness. <laughs> but living like that, it doesn't come naturally, I'll tell you that. We need the Lord to give us not only the ability to do that, but even the desire to do it. Because I know, as you, as you hear me talking, some of you are thinking, that's a little crazy. That's a bit much. That's a bit more than what I want to embrace. Of course, it's more than you want to embrace. Uh, that's why Paul says in Philippians 2.13 that it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose. It, it is the work of God within our lives that gives us even the desire to lay down our lives, even the desire to quit living for self and now to begin to live for Christ and then he gives us the ability to do that. Well, what does that look like? I think it looks like what Paul describes in Romans chapter 12. In Romans chapter 12, Paul writes this. He says, therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God. Now, let's stop there for a moment. In view of the mercies of God, taking into account what it is that Christ has done for us. Now, if you think that God has just simply granted you a small favor of, of, of forgiving you your sin, you misunderstand what it cost him. See, God is not lacking justice. God doesn't merely write off or disregard our sin. He paid for it himself in full. So much so that Paul writes to the Corinthians and tells them that he who knew no sin, Jesus, became sin in our place so that we might become the righteousness of God. That, that baffles my mind. I can't even comprehend what it is he gave up nor what it is that he has granted to me, but I know this. It is greater than I can comprehend. That God put on human flesh, and though he had never sinned, yet he took the punishment and the shame, the pain of my sin upon himself. 
because he loves me in order to rescue me. And so in view of that, in response to that, Paul says, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. He says, I want you to present your bodies, your life as a living sacrifice. Now, living sacrifices, they don't live long, right? That's the whole idea behind sacrifice. They're put there upon the altar, and that is where they end. And yet, uh, what Paul is talking about is how we live our life. Uh, The living out of our life becomes a sacrifice to God, a gift to him, a response to him for what it is that he has done for us. And Paul says this, this is what true worship is. This is true worship when we choose to live our lives as an act of worship. What does that mean? What Practically, what does that look like? Well, he says two things here. He says, first, it means that we will not be conformed to this age. He says, do not be conformed to this age, or as J.B. Phillips translated it, do not let this world press you into its mold. Remember the Play-Doh sets you bought for your kids when they were little? Or maybe for some of you. Remember that Play-Doh you ate when you were little? And before you ate it all, uh, you, you would take the plastic mold that came with it and you'd shove that soft Play-Doh into the mold and then you'd pop it out and, and voila, you were an artist. You had created this thing by shoving it into the mold, right? And that is what this world is doing with us every day, every moment. It is seeking to to press us, to push us, to shape us according to its pattern, its way, its way of thinking, its way of seeing things. But what Paul says is don't let this world press you into its mold, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You see, the way you escape being pressed into this world's mold is by letting God begin to shape you. But notice something here. Notice that the way the world shapes you is the direct opposite of the way that God seeks to shape you. This world uses outward pressure to to force you into the path that it wants you to take. God works on your heart and your mind. God wants to transform you from the inside out. And so Paul says, Be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God is. So that you might know what it would look like to live your life as an expression of Christ to this world. Friends, when we surrender our lives to the Lord, when we choose to live our lives as an act of worship, rather than letting this world shape us, God begins to renew our minds by his word and to transform our hearts by his spirit. And he makes us day by day and and bit by bit more and more to be like our Savior. Understand that that is not just an inner life change. It it isn't just about a personal, private morality. When Christ has his way with us, as he puts it in Matthew chapter 5, there in verses 13 and 15, 
we become the salt of the earth and the light of the world. We begin not only to be changed in who we are, but we begin to have an influence and impact upon the world around us. We become God's agent of preservation, the salt of the earth, that which keeps out the rot. We preserve all that is good. And we become the the source of that shining light, the light of the world, shining the light of God's truth into every sphere of life. It changes us inwardly, which changes us outwardly in every phase. One way that you and I have a unique opportunity to express and to live out this change is in voting. Now, think about this for a minute. Not many in history and not many even in our own day have that privilege, but we do, we do. I would say because of that, it's not only just a privilege, but it's a duty as well. I think an interesting perspective on this comes from Samuel Adams, uh, one of the founding fathers, probably more known for being a beer brand today, but he actually was one of the guys who set up the nation. And he said this, he said, let every citizen remember at the moment that he is offering his vote. Let's stop there for a second. We never think about it in that way. We always think about casting our vote, about expressing our political stance, our view through our vote. Our vote becomes an issue of self-expression. But Adams here puts it in very different terms. He says this, that we, at the moment that we offer our vote, we, our vote is an offering. It is an act of worship. And listen to this. I don't think he means that it is being offered to the state. Listen to what he says. He says that he is executing one of the most solemn trusts in human society for which he is accountable to God and his country. Now, I get what Paul writes in Philippians 3.20, that our citizenship is in heaven. And aren't we glad? It's a much better place. North Idaho is great. Heaven is better. You know, I imagine the tropics, a nice white sandy beach, middle of this winter, that would sound pretty great. Heaven is better. It's good that our citizenship is in heaven. Uh, meaning that heaven is our destination. It it is our true home. It's what we're living for. It's a place that we long to be. Yet even though heaven is where our citizenship is found, yet God told even the Jews who found themselves living as captives in Babylon in Jeremiah 29, 29, 7, that they were to pursue the well-being of the city to which I have deported you. God says, I know you're a captive and I put you there. And even though you're not at home, even though you're a captive in this place, what I want you to do is I want you to seek the well-being of that city, to pray to the Lord on its behalf, for when it thrives, 
you will thrive. <laughs> Let me tell you, if the Lord tells captives in Babylon to pursue the good of their city, and if it was possible for, for Jews living there under the dictatorship of Nebuchadnezzar to, to actually have an impact, to, uh, to do something that would end up bettering their situation, then I'd say that it's probably true for us as well, that that's something that, that, that we can do. We can pray. Uh, we can engage in our culture. We can serve our communities and seek for their good. Just as in any other area of our life, our political involvement, if we belong to Christ, is to be lived out through the expression of no longer for self, but now as Christ lives through you. In other words, I need to no longer see this as being my vote, but as being Jesus's vote. So I need to begin doing like they do in Chicago, right? I'm going to start voting for someone who died and who rose again. And, and just like every other, every other area of life, uh, I am going to, to live out what I do, no longer for self, no longer for me, but I'm going to trust the Lord. I'm going to choose what, what Solomon said in Proverbs 3, 5, to trust in the Lord with all my heart rather than relying on my own understanding. And instead of me being the one who makes the choice, I am now going to submit that choice to the one whom I call Lord. And I would say that just like every other area of my life, that one day when I stand before the Lord, I think he's going to ask me this. So you voted for me down there on earth. How did you have me vote? <laughs> think that maybe he won't do that? I don't know. Read the parable that he gives in Luke 19. There he talks about a, master who gives his servants assets and then goes away on a long journey only to return a long time later. And when he returns, he holds them accountable uh, for what they did with the assets he gave them. I think he will ask no less of us. You and I, We've been given so much, so much. We've been given so much opportunity, so much freedom. I think that one day the Lord will ask us, what, what did you do with all that I gave you? All that freedom, all of that opportunity. Well, what can we do with it? I see three things. Uh, we can pray and we can engage. And we've got to remember this. We can trust. First and foremost, and I really do mean first and primary, we can pray. We can pray regularly for our country and for our leaders. 
whether you are excited by the direction the country is going or terrified by the direction the country is going, you can pray for our country, you can pray for our leaders, just as scripture commands us to do. First Timothy 2.2, we are to pray for all those who are in authority. I want you to notice two things, two words there, all and for. We don't just pray for the ones we like. I mean, that'd be a much shorter list, right? But we're to pray for all who are in authority. And notice, too, we are to pray for them. It doesn't count if you just pray against them. We are to pray for those who are in authority over us. Pray for our leaders. We also, especially as we approach an election, need to be praying that God would show us who and what to vote for. It's not always easy to figure it out, is it? And we need to be praying that God would give us wisdom. And I think it is totally allowable to pray for a favorable outcome. Now, I think it's, I think it's cheating for football teams to pray. That, that's just not right. <laughs> but for the outcome of political situations, I think, yes, we absolutely should be praying for a favorable outcome. Finally, we can and we've got to be asking, we've got to be praying, asking the Lord, what is, what is my part? What am I supposed to be doing in the midst of all this? And that really brings us to the next thing that we can do. We can engage. We can engage in the process here. We can choose to do something that is either slightly or or moderately or even massively costly to us uh, in order to benefit and not only ourselves, but those around us. We can seek the good of the community in which God has planted us. Can you imagine how different things would be if Christians began to engage in the political process and began to engage in it from the perspective of what Philippians 2.3 tells us, that we are to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, considering others as more important than yourselves. I read that passage, I do not think of politicians first and foremost, right? Can you imagine what an impact it would be if those engaging in the political realm begin to live their lives according to the biblical mandate here? You and I, we we have the opportunity to engage in the political process at really a very low cost. Think about those who are engaging the process in Iran or in Sudan today. They are, they are doing so at the risk and often at the cost of their lives. You and I, here in our day and in our country, we can engage at a very low cost, and we should. We need to. We can start by simply speaking freely. 
to friends and to neighbors, to begin to engage in conversations, though they may be difficult, though they may be complicated, they're conversations that need to be had. I mean, we had a tremendous um, win this last summer, didn't we, with Roe v. Wade being overturned? A tremendous victory for the cause of life. Uh, but laws can be changed in an instant. You get that, don't you? The fact that the Roe v. Wade was overturned is a very positive thing. But it isn't the solution. It wouldn't even be the solution if abortion just somehow became universally illegal. Because laws can change. What is needed is that it would become unthinkable. The people would begin to understand that this is a life. This is a human being. This is valuable. And the only way that will happen isn't with legislation, but with conversation. Oh, we can engage as well by voting and by supporting those who we deem to be worthy of our vote. I think even more importantly, we can engage by serving locally. You know, our greatest opportunity to have an impact upon the community in which we live is to engage locally. It's the schools, the libraries, the government. You know, our, our, our school superintendent here, they are getting ready to purchase a new curriculum for the school system. And they are asking people to help them sort through those curriculums to make sure that none of the nonsense that so many districts are pushing on their kids is in the curriculum that they buy. They've asked for our help. What a great opportunity. If you have the education, if you have the, the, the mindset to sift through a textbook and, and uh, look not only for the blatant things, but for the, uh, the subtle things that are woven in. Begin to help preserve the educational system here locally. What a great opportunity for us. Our libraries, our local government, they need Christians who will be seeking to make this a better place. There are a lot of ways that we can engage. Now, when it comes to voting, if we are going to take seriously that it is no longer I who vote, but Christ Jesus who votes through me, and then we've got to figure out how exactly does Jesus vote, right? And sometimes that can be fairly simple. Uh, sometimes it, it's very easily determined by just looking at the clear teaching of Scripture. If the issues or the candidate is for the thing that God stands against, vote the other way, right? I wish I could say if the issues of the candidate was for the things that God is for, vote for them. But usually that isn't the situation we find ourselves in, is it? As is often the case, always the case, really, when all the candidates fall short of what Scripture commands, we pick the one which is least egregious. It's that simple. And when all the candidates are equally awful, we've been there, haven't we? 
That's when we pray some more. Well, if we're going to evaluate the candidates biblically, we, we need to know what the Bible teaches about the issues that are currently in play. And so let me briefly touch upon a few of those. Uh, first of all, in regard to the job of government, well, what is government there for anyway? I want you to think of Romans chapter 13. There in verse 4, God's word says the government is to be God's servant for your good. Don't you wish that was just the way government was? It was just God's servant for our good. Well, that's what it's supposed to be. And Paul goes on, he says, but if you do wrong, be afraid because it does not carry the sword for no reason, for it is God's servant, an avenger that brings wrath on the one who does wrong. And so what he's saying here is the government's job is to keep order. And they are to approve of what is good, yes, but they are also to punish those who do evil. A government that doesn't punish evil is not doing its job. And when government calls evil good and good evil, that's bad government. Secondly, let's consider abortion. God's word says that life, human life is sacred and it's to be protected. And scripture quite clearly confers personhood upon the unborn. That's, that's significant right now within the, uh, the debate about life. And think about this. In Matthew chapter 1, Scripture speaks about Jesus before he is born. And in Luke chapter 1, of John the Baptist before he is born. And in both places, uh, though they are not yet born, they are spoken of as being persons, as being children, while they are still within their mother's wombs. Uh, all through Scripture, this is the assumption. Isaiah chapter 49, verse 1. The Lord called me before I was born. He named me while I was in my mother's womb. And not just that he picked a name before uh, Isaiah was born, but Isaiah was a person. He named me before I was born. Called by God, given a name before he saw the light of day. Understand this. Even more than a, a pregnant woman knows her child, far more than, than a father would know his yet unborn child, God knows them. The Lord knows us because he is the one who knits us together. He forms us as Jeremiah 1.5 proclaims, I chose you before I formed you in the womb. I set you apart before you were born. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Think about that for a minute. Think about that. God here is speaking about an unborn child, what many would call a fetus or a clump of cells. And God says, no, I made you, Jeremiah, and I knew you. And I assigned a task to you all before you were born. God not only makes us, but as Genesis 1.27 tells us, he made us in his own image. And because of that, human life at any and every stage is sacred and must be protected. Now, before those 
who have had abortions or who have encouraged others towards abortion before you begin to give yourself over to self-condemnation or despair, please hear this. Please hear this. There is forgiveness in Christ. There is forgiveness in Christ. There is no sin that cannot be forgiven if we will come to him. 1 John 1.9 makes an astounding promise it promises us that no matter what we've done, that we can not only be forgiven, but listen to what John writes there. He says, if we confess our sin, he, that is God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sin, and don't miss this, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, this, this starts with confession. It starts with coming terms with agreeing with God that what we've done is wrong. That is a painful part of that process, isn't it? We come to God and we say, God, I confess to you. I have sinned. I need your cleansing, your forgiveness. But when we do that, he makes a promise to us that he will forgive and that he will cleanse. Friends, whatever you have done, if you are surrendered to the Lord, if you have confessed your guilt to him, by faith, take him at his word. Know that he is reliable. Despite the enemy's accusations, despite the, the attacks that you make against yourself, understand God's word promises, and so we know it to be a fact that, that we are forgiven, that we are cleansed. The, Christ, the cross of Christ is enough. There is no need for you to punish yourself there is no need for you to devalue yourself, to doubt God's love for you, to doubt the, your suitability to be used by God, uh, to doubt that he would pour out his blessings on you. You are forgiven and you are cleansed if you are in Christ because no matter what, the cross is enough. It's enough. Stop punishing yourself. In regards to marriage, God says that marriage is his thing. He invented it and he defined it. And you and I would do well to recognize that he values it quite a bit more highly than we often value. Uh, most concisely in Mark chapter 10, in verses 6 through 9, Jesus referencing uh, Genesis chapter 2 says this, from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. We'll have to come back to that in just a minute. For this reason, a man, and we need to do a little bit of basic math here. I think you're up for this. Uh, a man, one man, one man, will leave his father and mother and the two, okay, now there was one man and there are two, so that is one woman, one man, one woman will become, and the math gets complicated here, 
one flesh. This is the one place where one plus one equals one, okay? And so uh, they are no longer two, but they are now one flesh. In other words, it is no longer you and them, or unfortunately, sometimes you versus them. It is now just us. It's now just us. And then Jesus says, therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Government should not try to change the definition of marriage because it does not belong to them. I'm not going to change your dog's name, no matter how much I think it's a goofy name. You can call your dog what you want because it's your dog. Marriage belongs to God. He gets to define it. Nor should government denigrate the value of marriage. And as a side note, neither should we. Well, I said we'd come back to it. Here we are. In regard to identity and sexuality, God's word says this, Genesis 1.27, God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. Understand this, uh, the grammar in the original Hebrew language is very clear. Uh, what, is, what is being talked about here is that God created and created either as male or as female. Uh, God assigned your sex at conception. Understand that, at conception. Every cell in your body, scientifically, we know this to be true, it carries the genetic code of your sex. Sex is not something that is assigned at birth. It is only verified at birth, okay, or recognized at birth. Now, I understand this. Feelings can be powerful. They can be confusing, even disorientating, but they don't create reality. Understand this, reality is objective, it is real. Subjectivism, is, it's overtaking our culture right now. It's the thought that the way I perceive reality actually creates reality. But you can't live like that. If you just decide that you feel like your brake pedal is what makes your car go, you're gonna spend the afternoon in the parking lot. You're not going anywhere because no matter how you feel about it, the objective reality is that the brake pedal doesn't make it go. And the objective reality is that our sex is assigned by God at conception. Secondly, let's talk about identity. Your identity is not found in feelings or behaviors. Those things are not big enough for that. Scripture says that we get our identity, first of all, from the fact that we are created in God's image. That is a much better identity. That's an upgrade from how I feel or how I behave. 
I'm creating in God's image, and not only that, as I put my faith in Christ and, and as I am because of Christ cleansed of all my sin, I become clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Now, I know some of you are stressed out right now. You're distracted because you haven't figured out what you're wearing for Halloween yet. And it's really troubling you. Let me tell you this. You are already in costume if you belong to Christ. What scripture says, Galatians 3.25, those who are baptized, and not think, speaking of water baptism, but who have been submerged into Christ, right? We have been clothed with Christ. We've been clothed with him. We are covered. It's like we are in costume and we can find our identity in Christ. Scripture also says that we are we are children of God. Now, being a child of God, that's a pretty good identity right there, don't you think? 1 John 3, 2 says, we are God's children now. And then it just gets better. This is amazing. He says, and what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when he, that is Jesus, appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. Where do we find our identity? Is it in our fallenness, our brokenness, in our preferences, in our feelings, or our thoughts? No. We find our identity in our God. We find our identity in Christ. Good government won't play along with fantasies. It won't play pretend but rather it will hold to objective truth and to objective reality. And it will protect children rather than indoctrinate them. Well, Proverbs chapter 14 tells us something that uh, we can just as readily see from history that righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. In the midst of this dumpster fire of a world, you and I, we have a role to play. We have a job to do. Uh, there's a way for us to respond to this it's not posting. It's not griping. It's not giving up. We, we don't have the option to despair. But rather we're to pray. We're to pray. To ask God to intervene. To ask God to empower us, to ask God to direct us, for him to use us as we seek the good of our world. And we're to engage. We're to engage in the place where God has placed us until that day that he calls us home. Oh, we're to engage by voting, by supporting, and maybe some of you by running, all of us by being connected and contributing to the place where God has called us to live. We pray, we engage, and finally, and I think this is so important, 
We've got to trust God with the outcome. We've got to trust him. You know, you don't have to be a big ball of anxiety over all this. I mean, yes, it's a mess out there. But we don't have to run around just on the verge of rage, always angry about the mess that the things are in. No, we just need to be faithful to do what God gives us to do. And then we need to trust him with the results. I mean, after all, is not the God we worship the same God that Daniel worshiped? Daniel, who was under King Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, if you had reason to despair, that's a pretty good reason to despair right there. And yet, here's what Daniel says about God. He changes the times and seasons. He removes kings and establishes kings. I think Daniel was reminding Nebuchadnezzar of that fact, but I think he was also reminding himself of that fact. He removes kings and he establishes kings. We need to remember what Psalm 146 tells us. Happy or blessed is the one whose help is the God of Jacob. That's where we need to look. That's where we need to put our hope. Our hope is not in a party. Our hope is not in a candidate. Our hope is not in some political move or outcome. Our hope, our help is the God of Jacob whose hope is in the Lord his God, the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. He remains faithful forever. No matter how things turn out, no matter what direction they go, our hope is in the Lord. Let's stand, let's pray together. Father, we, we thank you. God, thank you that, that our fate isn't up to our government. Thank you that our fate isn't up to us. But you are our hope. You are our help. Help us to, to remember that, to look to you. And God, I pray that, that we, would, we would go out from here remembering that you have called us to live Christ into our communities, to be your ambassadors, your representatives, to live no longer for self, but now for Christ, in every place we go and in every encounter that we have, and God, I pray that you would, you would stir us to become people of prayer who are praying for our leaders, who are praying for wisdom, who are praying for our community, that you would call us to be people who are engaging, Lord, having conversations, engaging in the process Hey, helping our community, serving our community so that they might be better places. And God, more than anything, that we would, we would be people who trust in our God. That we wouldn't have to walk around angry or despairing, but always remembering that our God is sovereign that our God is in control, 
and that he's coming soon. Work in us, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.